A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Siege of Jerusalem of 1099, Part 4 of 4. When the soldiers of the First Crusade marched towards the Holy Land, they were probably not aware that they had chosen probably the best time to do so. The Muslims were in an unprecedented state of political disunity. Not only was the Shiite Caliphate based in Egypt at war with its Sunni rival in Baghdad, but each Caliphate in turn had its own internal issues. The Seljuk Sultan of Baghdad, Malik Shah, called all Sunnis to unite under him against the heretical Shiites. But when he died in 1092, his mighty realm quickly collapsed amid succession crises and chaotic civil war. His two young sons fought for control of Iraq and Iran, while in Syria his brother Tutush sought to seize power for himself. When Tutush himself died in 1095, his sons likewise squabbled over their inheritance, one snatching Aleppo and the other Damascus. Meanwhile in Egypt, the Fatimid Caliph died unexpectedly in 1094, and his vizier followed him the year after. So by the time of the Crusaders' arrival, the Shiite state was likewise in a state of complete disarray. For the Byzantines, the situation became no easier, since several individual Turkish leaders were fighting to carve themselves out their own personal territories within Asia Minor. Emperor Alexius was forced to negotiate alliances with any leaders who he felt he could trust to work with him but in truth he lacked the manpower to effectively defend the empire's borders, and control of the region was slipping from his grasp. In Central Asia Minor, Christian Armenia had historically acted as a kind of buffer state between East and West for several previous centuries, indeed since at least the times of the Roman Republic. But in the mid-11th century, its capital, Ani, in the southern Caucasus mountains, was captured by the Byzantines, before a few years later being conquered and practically destroyed by the Turks. Many Armenians migrated to the region of Cilicia, on the coast of the far northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, around the border of today's Turkey and Syria. By July 1097, the Crusaders had successfully recaptured the city of Nicaea, and achieved an important victory on open battlefield against the forces of the local Turkish leader, Kilij Aslan. From there on, they were able to advance in a south-east direction towards the Levant, across territories belonging to Armenian princelings, nominally vassals of the emperor, 
but mostly independent from direct imperial control. Most local Armenians welcome the Crusaders as liberators. The chronicler Fudukar of Chartra, author of the Gesta Francorum, so described their welcome. Quote, when we were passing through the towns of the Armenians, you would have been amazed to see them coming humbly to meet us, carrying crosses and banners, and kissing our feet and garments for the love of God, because that they heard that we were going to protect them against the Turks, under whose yoke they had long been oppressed. End quote. The Byzantine commander, Tetikios led the crusaders and made sure the strategically important towns along the way were taken. In the town of Marash, today in southern Turkey, the local Armenian ruler, who was a former Byzantine official, gave the crusaders all the help he could muster, and in return had his authority over the city confirmed. Turkish-controlled areas were also secured, and in accordance with agreements made in Constantinople, were placed in the hands of the local imperial governor. At this point, the Crusaders split. While the main force headed to Antioch, Tancred and Baldwin headed into Cilicia. Some historians have interpreted this as the private enterprise of two very ambitious princes. Professor John France of the University of Swansea on the other hand, believes it was the part of a deliberate strategy among the leaders of the crusade. He notes how the Armenian populations of the cities in the path of the crusaders assisted the crusaders in ejecting the Turkish garrisons. The strategy was to guarantee Armenian support and provide much-needed bases in the area of Antioch. This freed up the armies of the Byzantines to separately take the southern coast of Asia Minor, and secure the island of Cyprus, which was to become a primary base from which to provision the Crusaders. This was the background behind Baldwin's expedition and explains his actions. As for Tancred, his motives for separating from the main army are less clear. It was his group who were the first to reach the city of Tarsus, a strategically important town with a good natural harbour on the Mediterranean coast. Thanks to a series of threats and the help of the local Armenians, Tancred managed to raise his banner over the ramparts without having to attack the town. Baldwin reached Tarsus soon after and had Tancred's banner replaced with his own. Antagonism between the two increased when Tancred moved on to the next town of Mamistra. When Baldwin's force arrived shortly afterwards, Tancred refused him entry. Eventually, the forces broke into open battle, with Tancred's surprise attack being beaten back by Baldwin's men. The leaders soon came to their senses and made terms, but it was the first time that Crusader had fought Crusader. Both men then rejoined the main Crusader army, leaving a garrison in charge of the captured towns. Soon afterwards, Baldwin received a message from Thoros, the Armenian governor of Edessa, requesting help against the imminent threat of attack from the Turks. Thoros at the time was not only having to confront the Turks, but also some of his fellow Armenians, who were angry at him for having converted to the Greek rite. Thoros had only done so as a tactic to stay in favour of the Byzantines. 
Baldwin at first refused, but changed his mind when Thoris proposed to make him co-ruler and heir by adopting him. Baldwin at once set about attacking the Turks in the region, and so put an end to their raids. Thoris was killed by his compatriot soon after. To what extent Baldwin might have been involved is not clear, but the result was that he was now sole ruler of the strategic town of Edessa and the region around. The Emperor Alexius was probably not displeased about these events. His strategy was to build a network of key towns and locations in the east held by trusted lieutenants. Baldwin was highly suited to the role. He was one of the few crusaders who saw the expedition not only as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but the prospect of a new life in the east. He started to wear Byzantine clothes and grew his beard in the local fashion. After the death of his English wife, he married a local Armenian noblewoman. In the meantime, the main crusader army reached the city walls of Antioch in the autumn of 1097. Theoretically, they could have bypassed the city, but it made sense to secure the city before moving on to Jerusalem. For Alexius, its capture was one of his highest priorities, and at this point the crusaders and empire were still cooperating well. The city held great religious significance. Founded originally by one of Alexander the Great's generals, Antiochus, tradition held that it was the site of the first church founded by St Peter, and it was home to one of the five patriarchs, the leading men of the church. Its liberation, therefore, also chimed with the expedition's spiritual goals. However, the city was not only strongly defended, but well located, set back against mountains on two sides, with the river Orontes to the west serving as a further obstacle. The city walls were 20 metres high, 2 metres thick and stretched for 5 kilometres, and in so large a city enough could be grown within its walls to sustain it almost indefinitely. The crusaders established themselves in the surrounding area, taking the city's ports to open up supply lines by sea to Cyprus. But as winter fell without any breakthrough, conditions became very harsh for the besiegers. Starvation and disease struck the Christian army. Many knights were forced to slaughter their horses for meat. Around this time, Tatikios and his Byzantine contingent separated from the main crusader army, apparently in search of reinforcements and provisions in Asia Minor. As spring arrived, conditions gradually improved, thanks to aid transported across the Mediterranean and a system of foraging centres established around the surrounding area. The Crusaders had tightened their grip around Antioch by fortifying a derelict mosque and in a monastery in the vicinity of the city. Had the Muslims sent a serious relief army during the winter, they would have had a good chance of success. Instead, the rival brothers in Damascus and Aleppo sent separate uncoordinated attacks in December and February, respectively. But both underestimated the strength of their foe. Beramun took the leading role in battle, his ferocious determination inspiring his men and startling the enemy.
Just as importantly, his battle tactics and the discipline of his men were crucial in achieving victory. The young Norman was a rising star and greatly admired by many other knights. Finally, in late May, the Sultan in Baghdad finally responded to Antioch's appeals for help by raising a full army of 40,000 troops, led by the Turkish commander Kirboga. Fortunately for the Crusaders, the Muslim army got held up at Edessa, trying to wrest the city from Baldwin. Crucially, this gave them enough time for a final attempt to break through the walls of Antioch before the Turks arrived. At this point of crisis, Bohemond stepped forward and argued that in light of their predicament, whoever could engineer Antioch's downfall should have legal rights to the city. After much debate, this was agreed with the understanding, at least by some, that it should be returned to the Emperor Alexius if he came to claim it. Tatakios and his Byzantine army had still not returned, making the Crusaders wonder if the Emperor was serious about helping. The reason turned out to be that the Crusader, Stephen of Blois, on his way back to Constantinople, had falsely reported to Alexios that the Crusader army had already been destroyed. Hence Alexius saw no need to send an army to Antioch. Bohemond now revealed his hand. It transpired he had made contact with a renegade inside the city, an Armenian tower commander, who was prepared to betray the city. On the night of the 2nd to 3rd of June, a group of Bohemond's men managed to scramble over the wall using a ladder left for them. The guards of the three nearest towers were silently dispatched and a small gate opened below. The calm night air was suddenly shattered as the crusaders shouted their battle cry, God wills it, prompting eastern Christians within the city to turn on their Muslim overlords and open the city's remaining gates. The crusaders poured into the city and the chaotic slaughter began. The governor fled in terror only to be caught and decapitated by a local peasant. Bohemond's plan had succeeded but they had little time to celebrate. The next day, on the 4th of June, the vanguard of Kirboga's army arrived. Antioch was soon surrounded, leaving the crusaders captured within. Rather than rush his assault, Kirboga deployed his resources carefully and set up camp by the walls. After months of siege, there were no supplies left within the city. The crusaders were so short of food that they resorted to eating shoes and other leather goods, or trying to eat indigestible plants, some of which ended up being poisonous. They had little choice but to come out and meet the enemy army head-on. Before they did so, for three days they took part in solemn processions, celebrations of the Eucharist and making confession. Then on the 28th of June, 1098, they marched out from Antioch. Kiriboga, on hearing the news, was so surprised that he did not believe it, and so hesitated to respond. When he finally ordered an attack, the crusaders kept their discipline, and with small units of heavy cavalry, succeeded in breaking up the enemy formation. 
Kedaboga's army lost its nerve and scattered, and his army and everything in it was captured. The Crusaders had achieved one more great victory in the battlefield, and in so doing secured the strategic city of Antioch. Morale was further boosted by the support received from the population of the surrounding area. Exhausted after a long siege, the Crusaders decided to delay the march south to Jerusalem until the winter, in order to give them time to recover their strength. The months that followed were taken up with a struggle between its leaders for the future direction of the crusade. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Decisions now had to be made about how to govern Antioch and who would do so. It is at this point when the lack of a clear leadership structure started to become a problem. The Pope's envoy, Bishop Adhemar, who had earned much respect with his great bravery, died shortly after the capture of Antioch. His death marks a turning point, for whilst he lived, the bishop had been a calming influence and acted as a bridge between Byzantium and the Westerners. This is the point at which conflict started to arise between the Byzantines and the Crusaders. Had a Byzantine army accompanied the Crusaders, this may have been avoided. Instead, the Westerners increasingly felt that since they had been left alone, then they had the right to do as they liked with any newly conquered lands. Such a belief was encouraged by those hoping to exploit it for their own advantage. The two antagonists within the Crusaders, each attempting to take personal control, were Raymond of Toulouse and Bohemond. While Raymond insisted that the oaths to Alexius should be obeyed, Bohemond attempted to take personal control of the city. He justified the power grab by claiming the oaths were now void, since the Empire's army had abandoned them. It was he, Bohemond, after all, he claimed, who had been responsible for the Crusaders' military victories and the taking of the city. As an open admission of how divided loyalties were, it was announced that all those taking part in the expedition were now free to take service with whichever lord they wished. 
Raymond was still popular and respected among the troops and retained the loyalty of a good number of French troops. But there was a growing feeling as time passed by without the arrival of the Byzantines that they had been let down and Raymond's continued support of Alexios became more difficult to justify. After several months' delay, most crusaders were keen to move on to Jerusalem. Bohemon realised that his best option for trying to take Antioch under his personal control was to sit tight and wait. Raymond was reluctant to leave Antioch with Bohemond still in the city, aware he'd be allowing the Norman to take over. But by the beginning of 1099, Raymond finally gave up trying to resist Bohemond's demands, and prepared to set off for Jerusalem without him. Progress at first was good, but the crusaders were held up for three months, besieging the town of Arica. During this time, Alexius heard of the crusaders' victory at Antioch, and their change in attitude towards him. So he dispatched envoys to inform them he was sending an army which would soon arrive, and requested them to hold position and wait. Instead, the crusader army, now distrustful of the emperor, did the exact opposite. They abandoned the siege of Arca and marched full speed to the holy city. So after nearly three years and a remarkable journey of some 2,000 miles, the crusaders had reached their goal. For them it was the holiest place on earth, where Christ had suffered on the cross and the vacations of such sites as the Holy Sepulchre, the church built by Constantine the Great to enclose the supposed site of Jesus' tomb. The capture of Jerusalem would be no easy task. It stood on a section of raised grounds with deep valleys to the east, southeast and west. And like Antioch, it enjoyed the protection of formidable defences, two and a half miles long, sixty feet high and ten feet thick. Realistically, the city could only be attacked from the flatter ground to the north or southwest, but here the walls were reinforced by secondary curtain walls and a series of dry moats. Just the previous year, Jerusalem had been captured by the Fatimids from the Seljuk Turks. The Caliph in Egypt, eager to keep hold of the city, sent a relief army which was expected to arrive in 15 days. It was therefore imperative to launch an assault immediately. Unfortunately for the Crusaders, the size of their army was now reduced by perhaps a third from its original size, after losing men both in battle and from illness. The army comprised perhaps 15,000 warriors, including some 1,300 knights, but it lacked the material resources for serious attack. The army's fortunes were transformed by the timely arrival of six ships from Genoa at Jaffa, the nearest port to Jerusalem. Their crew included a number of skilled craftsmen and brought with them an array of equipment, including ropes, hammers, nails, axes and hatchets. Combined with the discovery of timber in a nearby forest, the Christians were suddenly in a position to assemble effective siege machinery. Two siege towers were rapidly assembled, one on the south side, 
whose forces were commanded by Raymond, and the other on the north, led by Godfrey of Burion, and assisted by Tancred. The split in forces made sense strategically, but it did represent a growing split within the army. Robert of Normandy now abandoned Raymond, who was fast losing authority, in favour of those now downright hostile to the Byzantines on the north side. Godfrey had a siege tower built especially to be able to be broken down into a series of portable sections and then rapidly reconstructed. During the night of the 13th to 14th of July, he used the cover of darkness to move the tower half a mile to the east, threatening an entirely new and less well-protected section of the wall. The attack now began in earnest. A huge battering ram broke through the outer wall and even threatened to damage the main wall. The defenders rained fire kindled from sulphur, pitch and wax upon the ram which set it alight. At first the crusaders rushed to extinguish the fire, but Godfrey, realising that the burning of the ram would cause plenty of damage, reversed tactics and encouraged his men to keep the flames burning. The defenders then attempted to put the fire out, but in vain. Under intense enemy fire, while sappers set about mining the wall from below, others climbed on top of the tower. Suddenly a nearby defensive tower and a portion of the battlements burst into flame. With their flaming catapult missiles, the attackers had succeeded in igniting the main wall's wooden substructure. In panic and confusion, the defenders facing the siege tower broke into retreat. Seizing the moment, Godfrey hurriedly cut loose one of the screens protecting the tower, fashioning a makeshift bridge across the ramparts. As the first crusaders poured onto the walls, their companions below raced forwards with scaling ladders and began climbing the wall. Using flashing mirrors to coordinate their attacks, the crusaders at the south wall simultaneously made their offensive. Although less successful, they managed to divert enough attention to greatly help their comrades. Tancred and his Normans were the first to scale the walls and burst into the narrow city streets. In desperation, many of the citizens fled to the Temple Mount for protection, pursued by the Crusaders. The attackers smashed their way through the gates and carnage ensued. The Latin sources leave nothing to the imagination as to the behaviour of the Crusaders and the degree of slaughter of the inhabitants. According to the Gesta Francorum, quote, almost the whole city was filled with their dead bodies, so the survivors dragged the dead ones out in front of the gates and piled them up in mounds as big as houses outside the city gates. No one has ever heard of such a slaughter of pagans, for they were burned on pyres like pyramids, and no one save God knows how many of them there are. End quote. Another chronicler joyfully reported, quote, With the fall of Jerusalem and its towers, one could see marvellous works. Some of the pagans were mercifully beheaded, others pierced by arrows, plunged from towers, and yet others tortured for a long time, were burned to death in searing flames.
end quote. A 13th century Iraqi author estimated the number of Muslim dead at 70,000. Modern historians generally accept that Latin estimates of 10,000 might be accurate. However, recent research, according to the historian Thomas Ashbridge, has uncovered a contemporary Hebrew testimony which indicates that casualties may not have exceeded 3,000 and that large numbers of prisoners were taken. This suggests that the image of the Crusaders' brutality was exaggerated by both Christian and Muslim sources. Extreme violence was, unfortunately, not uncommon from all sides during this period, and so the events at the Ford of Jerusalem were not exceptional. Even so, we must acknowledge the terrible cruelty of the Crusaders' butchery. Looking back now, we are shocked to imagine how the Crusaders could possibly reconcile their actions with their religious beliefs. Part of the reason must be that they had a genuine belief that they were doing God's work. The Ford of Jerusalem is a moment which perfectly encapsulates the Crusades' extraordinary fusion of violence and faith. As the dust settled, the Crusaders' thoughts turned to the fate of their new conquest. Raymond of Toulouse may have liked to have been put in charge, but his popularity was continuing to wane. Instead, Godfrey of Bouillon, chief architect of the victory at Jerusalem, was chosen to become the new man in charge of the Holy City. As for Raymond, he remained an ally of Alexius. He later fought for the city of Tripoli, and although he did not take it himself, his son was able to establish himself as Count of Tripoli in 1109. By this year, the Latins had established four new crusader states, the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south, the counties of Tripoli in Edessa, and the Principality of Antioch the latter of which was headed by Bohemond, and then his descendants. Overall, the First Crusade had been a success, and achieved its objective of putting Jerusalem back into Christian hands. The resounding success of the campaign was of huge importance, and encouraged further Crusaders to make their way to the Holy Land over the course of the next two centuries until the final crusader state finally fell in 1291. Victory in Jerusalem appeared to justify the belief that their cause was just. A failed campaign would have discouraged any further such expeditions and closed off a whole era of history before it had begun. Most crusaders, including Robert of Normandy and Robert of Flanders, now considered their work to be done and returned home, leaving just 300 knights and 2,000 infantrymen to defend the territory gained. Tancred was one of the few crusader leaders to remain, now looking to establish his own independent lordship in the east. As for the Byzantines, the campaign had been a partial success. Together with the Crusaders, they had regained Nicaea and other towns in Western Asia Minor. While the Crusaders had been fighting in the Levant, 
they had reasserted imperial control of the western and southern Anatolian coasts, and the islands lost earlier, such as Cyprus. Alexiot had hoped for the formation of friendly Christian buffer states in the east, and so would probably have not been displeased with Latin takeovers in Edessa, Tripoli and Jerusalem. However, he would have preferred better relations with their leaders, but they were preferable to the Turks. He was, however, greatly angered by the takeover of Antioch and the surrounding region. The Crusaders had promised to hand the city back to Alexius. Even worse, Bermond and his followers actively fought the Byzantines in an attempt to expand their territory. The Crusaders can be divided into two groups. Those originating from France and Northern Europe had, on the whole, every intention of fulfilling the original aim of the expedition, that is to help the Byzantine Empire against the Muslims, and keeping to the oaths they swore to Emperor Alexius. They had been inspired principally by an appeal to their faith, and the opportunity to earn forgiveness of all their sins, as promised by the Pope, rather than by material self-interest. The second group, the Normans from southern Italy, principally Bohemond and Tancred, instead saw the Crusades simply as an opportunity to further their ambitions of conquering new lands. They and their Norman predecessors had recently taken southern Italy and Sicily, often fighting against the Byzantines. Just before the Crusaders, they had tried to invade imperial territory in the Balkans. The Crusades had been a convenient cover to extend their campaign of land grabs. The success of the First Crusade would have been next to impossible without the assistance of the Empire. Alexis had presumably gone along with Berman's participation, firstly because it would have been difficult to exclude him, and secondly in the hope that the Normans' ambitions would be focused against the Muslims. Alexis at this time had other priorities, including keeping a lid on internal political stability. However, the Byzantines' absence at the capture of Antioch and Jerusalem gave the more ambitious crusaders the excuse they required to stoke anti-Byzantine resentment. The religious intolerance and sense of superiority of the Latin Church, which led to the Great Schism of 1054, reappeared after the victory. Within months, the same Eastern Christian brethren that the Westerners had been charged to protect during their holy war were subject themselves to persecution. Armenians, Copts, Jacobites and Nestorians were expelled from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and a new pro-Latin was appointed as Patriarch of Jerusalem, signalling a clear break with the policy of cooperation with Byzantium and its Eastern Church. For the Western chroniclers, the original aim of the expedition to help the Eastern Christians became an inconvenient truth, which they did their best to brush over. Not only this, but they took every opportunity available to try and vilify Alexius and the Byzantines in their accounts of the campaign. Religious fervour had been the inspiration and the driving force of the Crusaders, but a lack of compromise and refusal to cooperate with Christians of different churches would eventually lead to the downfall of the Crusader kingdoms and the permanent loss of the Holy Land to the Muslims. 
In the next podcast, I continue the story of the Crusades, focusing on the Battle of Hattin of 1187, a catastrophic defeat for the Westerners which led to the Muslim reconquest of Jerusalem. As a reminder, A History of Europe, Key Battles, now has its own Facebook page, where I put on resources related to the podcasts, including some handy maps. I will now have a break of three weeks. I hope you can join me again afterwards for the Battle of Hattin of 1187. Thank you for listening, and until then. 